Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Tuesday, the 13th day of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, I'll be talking to Jennifer Joseph, She's the publisher of the great independent house out of San Francisco, the Manic D Press. We'll be talking about recycled paper and why some independent publishers, such as Manic D and Melville House for that matter, don't use it. We'll also be hearing from our correspondent, Becky Kramer. She talked to Melville House's literary sub-agent for Japan about what they're reading in his neck of the woods. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger became a real-life Terminator last night by refusing to block the execution of Stanley Tookie Williams, the founder of the Crips Street Gang. This despite the pleas of numerous celebrities and civic figures from Jesse Jackson to Snoop Dogg to Sister Helen Prejean of Dead Man Walking fame, as well as college professors and students and even some foreign dignitaries who had nominated Williams for the Nobel Peace Prize. Williams was convicted of murdering four people in 1981. He maintained his innocence of those crimes, but he recanted his involvement with the Crips and became an eloquent spokesman advocating nonviolence, writing eight children's books warning about gang life, drugs, and street violence. But in a written release, as opposed to a statement made in person, the former action movie hero Schwarzenegger rejected the notion that Williams had atoned for his crimes. Schwarzenegger even noted that Williams dedicated his 1998 autobiography, Life in Prison, to black militant George Jackson as evidence of Williams' lack of atonement. Schwarzenegger said he found, quote, little mention of atonement in Williams' writings. Close quote. Harper Collins the book publishing arm of Rupert Murdoch's giant conglomerate News Corp, has announced a plan to combat the Google Print Initiative, also known as the Google Book Search Initiative. Rather than wait for the results of a publishing industry lawsuit against Google's plans to scan copyrighted books into libraries, HarperCollins is going to convert its 20,000 titles into digital form itself and only allow Google access to a catalog of those digitized titles. It is, in other words, going to create a digital card catalog of all its books. HarperCollins CEO Jane Friedman said as of yet the company has no plans on how to generate revenue from the digital warehouse, but she said the company, quote, couldn't sit back and wait for something to happen to us. We needed to protect our rights and the rights of our authors, close quote. Meanwhile, company president Brian Murray says, quote, we just don't know how many millions of dollars this will be, but if publishers don't do this, there are going to be too many digital copies of our books out there. The company says it has no idea yet how long the project will take, but it hopes to have at least a few thousand titles digitized by the middle of next year. Google, meanwhile, refused comment on the announcement. 
the CEO of the HMV Group, that's the conglomerate that owns Great Britain's largest bookstore chain, Waterstones, says he's confident the company will be able to persevere in its effort to take over Great Britain's second largest bookstore chain, Otakers, despite recent setbacks. Most places reported that the attempted takeover was dead when the British government's Office of Fair Trading refused to approve the deal and instead referred it to the Competition Commission for an in-depth six-month inquiry. But HMV's CEO Alan Giles says he will not withdraw despite fierce protest from British authors and the country's Publishers Association, as well as widespread analyst opinion that the Competition Commission will ultimately block the bid. Giles tells the Daily Telegraph, quote, we are confident there is no substantial lessening of competition, close quote. But meanwhile, the head of the Publishers Association says the investigation was the achievement of his group's goal. The association's president, Richard Charkin, tells the Telegraph he's not concerned about HMV. He says, quote, the important thing now is for these bloody booksellers to get off their arses and sell some books, close quote. The man who posted a false biographical entry on Wikipedia of John Siegenthaler, a former aide to Senator Robert F. Kennedy, saying that Siegenthaler had been involved with the murders of both Bobby Kennedy and President John F. Kennedy, has come out in public and apologized. According to an Associated Press report, after reading Siegenthaler's op-ed piece in USA Today complaining about the entry, 38-year-old Brian Chase resigned from his job as a manager at a Nashville delivery company and apologized to Siegenthaler. Chase told the Nashville Tennessean, where Siegenthaler was once upon a time the publisher, that the entry was a practical joke on a colleague who knew the Siegenthaler family. Quote, it was done as a joke that went horribly, horribly wrong, said Chase. According to the AP, Chase also said he simply didn't realize that Wikipedia was regarded by some as a serious reference tool. Well, tis the season for year-end best-of lists, and Time Magazine has taken an interesting tack on the subject this year, publishing in its current issue a list of seven books you may have missed. So what overlooked or obscure titles does Time helpfully fill its readers in on? What books by writers and publishers toiling in obscurity do the crack reporters of Time magazine uncover? Number one on the list is the little-known writer Philip Roth, who apparently published a book this year called The Plot Against America. Someone named Alice Munro came out with a book of stories called Runaway. Another book apparently completely overlooked was called Prep, and it was written by a Curtis Sittenfeld. Somebody named Joseph J. Touchdown Ellis even wrote a book about George Washington called His Excellency George Washington. And last on the list, a biography called Chronicles Volume 1 by an obscure musician from Minnesota named Bob Dylan. And that's the news. Or is it? For Tuesday, the 13th of December, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 13th, and on this day in 1784, Dr. Samuel Johnson, one of the greatest figures in literary history and the subject of the first great psychological biography, 
died at the age of 75. Johnson was the son of an impoverished bookseller, and he never had much money himself. Poverty, in fact, forced him to leave Oxford University before completing his degree, and he was unable to hold on to some early jobs as a teacher. It wasn't until he made his way to London, where he married a widow, 21 years his senior, that he was able to find steady work as a writer for the magazine The Gentleman's Magazine. He wrote prodigious amounts of articles for the next three years, including essays, poetry, biographies, and even parliamentary reports. Still, he barely made ends meet. So he took on numerous other assignments, such as what was perhaps the very first dictionary, his Dictionary of the English Language. It took him over 12 years to compile. The project was brought to Johnson by a local book printer, but it came with no advance. Johnson had to support himself during its composition. So he took on a bi-weekly series of essays on culture and religion and politics that he called The Rambler. This failed, so he started another series that he called The Idler. This didn't do so well either. In fact, neither did well until they were collected in single volumes. Likewise, the dictionary, when completed, garnered widespread praise but made Johnson little money. Still, his fame increased, and late in life, after the death of his wife and nearly blind, he was given a government pension thanks to the intercession of some influential admirers. It was around this time that Johnson met the Scots writer and failed attorney James Boswell. The two struck up a friendship and traveled to Scotland together. Boswell's account of the trip became a smash bestseller. Meanwhile, Johnson worked on what would become one of his own greatest books, Lives of the English Poets. The series of critical biographies of the leading poets of the day appeared first as introductions to volumes by those poets, then were collected and published by a consortium of London printers. Johnson had become a celebrity by then, with a well-known circle of friends he called The Club, it included the painter Joshua Reynolds, writer Oliver Goldsmith, philosopher-statesman Edmund Burke, and actor David Garrick. Throughout this time, Boswell took copious notes on Dr. Johnson's every move and utterance, and after Johnson's death, his fame was only increased by the sensational book. Critics have said it pays too much attention to Johnson's quirks, his actual physical quirks, that is, which have led some to suspect that Johnson may have suffered from a form of Tourette's syndrome. And yet the endless bon mots give a vivid sense of the genius of the man himself. In the feverishness of his prose, in fact, in the animating urge to get it all down, the famously profligate Boswell only seems to exemplify one of the most famous quotes of his subject. That is, quote, Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is about to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. This is Mr. Valerie Marion's, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. I've got Shimo from Owl's Agency, a literary agency in Japan on the line. Shimo, how are things in Japan? Well, it seems very well. Yeah, going well. And what's the most popular book in Japan right now? Yeah, uh, the, actually, the, uh, this book, uh, all the time, you know, just became the best uh, when it came out in Japan every year. 
Uh, it's a, a kind of fortune-telling books. Okay, like and astrology? It's, uh, you know, based on a Chinese horoscope. The author's name is uh, Kazuko Hosoki. And the first printing is unbelievable, you know, 12 million copies. Wow. Yeah, around this time. You know, there's a book telling you uh, uh, next year is your fortune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, divided by, you know, each kind of a horoscope, uh, months, kind of. So how long will this stay on the bestseller list, year-round? Mm-hmm. Yeah, year-round, yes. And uh, uh, this title actually uh, appeared in the Guinness Book of the World. For best, most best-selling yeah, book? Yeah, because uh, every year uh, they can, you know, print 12 million copies. That's amazing. Last five years, I think. Does it do well outside of Japan as well, for perhaps Japanese? No, I don't think so. Just in Japan? I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm not sure it's work in your country, you know. <laughs> it's a Chinese thing. But I, I, I don't know it's published in China as well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Well, are there any other books by Japanese authors that maybe some Americans may have heard of? Pardon? Are there other books by Japanese authors that we may recognize? Uh, you mean uh, the published in the United States? Sure. Beside uh, Haruki Murakami? Correct. <laughs> He's very I popular. You know, I, recently, I heard that Kirino Natsuo, she, she's a, a, you know, a great mystery writer in Japan. Mm-hmm. Her title published in the United States. And what I is that? I believe it's a vintage. Uh, the title called Out. Mm-hmm. And it's become the movie. Hmm. And uh, I heard Random House about every title by her. And what's her name again? Uh, Kirino Natsuo, no, the female so. mystery author. Hmm. Yeah, she, uh, she's uh, uh, you know, one of the best-seller authors in Japan. Hmm. Well, what about what American books are you bringing over to the Japanese audience now? Oh, that's a difficult question, actually. You know, these days, uh, we are selling, uh, you know, as an agent, more Korean title. Hmm. Yeah, sounds strange, though. More Korean than American? No, just Korean. Because, mm. uh, you know, that, uh, Korean TV is so popular, you know, getting uh, quite popular among Japanese people, I mean, mainly female, middle-aged woman. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, pure love story, kind of. And uh, there is one uh, big talent. Uh, his name is Peyonjun. You know, she's bigger than Brad Pitt and any other Hollywood movie star. It's the biggest one, in, only in Japan. Hmm. And uh, he's a, a super hit drama called Winter's Sonata. Uh, NHK published his title. I believe they sold uh, like three million copies. Wow. Yeah, based on the TV program. And that's, that's written in Korean? Oh, yeah, originally written in Korea and uh, translated in Japanese, of course. Wow. Yeah. What other languages do Japanese readers read in? Uh, English mainly, of course, and uh, co- uh, Korean translation work. And uh, we had a huge bestseller from Spanish. It's uh, you know, kind of a fable, self-help fable, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, Who Moved the Cheese? Uh-huh. A title called Good Luck. And it's, it's, is it published in Spanish in Japan and read in Spanish, or is it, is it published in Japanese? Uh, published in Japanese. Hmm. And the fruit sold uh, like uh, 1.6 million. Would you say that self-help and nonfiction are more popular than fiction in Japan? 
Yeah, as for the foreign titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, business title, self-help, this kind of thing. And uh, also the romantic substance, uh, like uh, I.C. Johansson. Mm-hmm. And the uh, biggest one is uh, maybe Nora Roberts. Nora Roberts, yes. And J.D. Roth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, you know, Nora Roberts and J.D. Roth. Right, yeah. You were telling me a little earlier before we uh, started talking about Stephen King and your experience with reading Stephen King and Strange Things Happening to You. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have been a big fan of the Stephen King. And uh, actually, I read uh, Stephen King in English, not Japanese. And, uh, but uh, when I read it, you know, very strange things happened to me, very weird things, you know. Then I being very scared and uh, I stopped reading I just stopped reading you know and now I uh, started again reading this uh, you know the uh, Stephen King and I started with the stands the stand yes yeah in Japanese it's uh, published in five volumes wow but the stand is good but uh, again I started it you know also the very strange thing that you know started happening to me this morning, I, I went out for, you know, uh, for a walk with my dog, mm-hmm. and uh, on the street, car, you almost hit me. That's terrible. So scared. And uh, yesterday, uh, I went to the Zen Temple the, located in north of Japan, my favorite place, mm-hmm. and uh, there's not much, you know, that's uh, airplane, just one airplane. Okay. And I had to go back to Tokyo. But there was a big snow. Snowstorm? It's very rare thing around this time. And, uh, you know, the uh, airplane stuck, stuck mm. airport. Oh, no. Yeah, it's ter- terrible. Well, I guess it gave you some more time to keep reading the Stephen yeah, King. Yeah, keep reading. So I, I kept reading the it in the airport. And then this, <laughs> this is going to be the last Stephen King for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm not going to stop the Stephen King. I have to finish the story. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Maybe a happy ending. I, yeah, hope, I hope so, so. and I hope, <laughs> I hope nothing else happens to you out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, well, can you tell me if there are American authors who are popular in Japan who Americans may not expect? Uh, besides Dan Brown, you mean? You besides, definitely besides Dan Brown. Yeah, Dan Brown is, uh, you know, everywhere. Every bookshop carry, carried up, uh, you know, that's Dan Brown. Yeah. Yes, and that's every country. Maybe I can tell you that the one title, that's, uh, you know, huge best uh, now, that's titled uh, called Confession. Confession. Yes, written by Charles R. Jenkins. Hmm. Ring a bell? Charles Jenkins. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't ring a bell. No, he's uh, he used to be in the U.S. Army. He worked to the South uh, South Korea okay. Army base. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's back in maybe 80s. 1980s, yeah. 80s, yeah, 1980s, and but he uh, somehow exiled to North Korea. Okay. Yeah, exiled to North Korea, and he stayed there and joined the, some, I don't know, army maybe, or a spy, okay. I don't know. Hmm. And he got married with a Japanese woman. Uh, her name is Soga Hitomi. But uh, you know, that's early 80s. Yeah. There are so many uh, Japanese people abducted by North Korea huh. in uh, north of Japan. Right. Uh, to train uh, some spies, North Korean spies, wow. to educate, you know, to run in the Japanese culture and the language. It's a very sad story, you know. And uh, 
they returned to Japan. So uh, I think two years ago. So he was a defector. Yes. And he just returned, correct? Yeah, he returned to Japan together. Oh. So he told me under Charles Jenkins. And, and uh, you know, he cooperated with the U.S. Army as well, U.S. government. Yeah, actually, he's a criminal to U.S. government, you know. Huh. Wow. Yeah. But he uh, decided to cooperate with the uh, U.S. government. And now he told everything about North Korea. Hmm. Yeah, that's confession. And so that book has been incredibly popular. Yeah, incredibly popular. I believe that it's going to be published in the United States as well. Or already out, maybe. Well, we'll check on that for you, and we'll let you know. Yeah. Well, Shimo, it was great to talk to you today. Yeah. Take care, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. I've got Jennifer Joseph on the line. She's the publisher of Manic D Press uh, in San Francisco, California. Manic D, one of the great independents. But Jennifer, um, even though you're an alternative publisher, if I can call you that, um, you don't print your books on recycled paper. Why not? Well, at this point, the cost of printing on recycled paper is prohibitive for smaller publishers who are constantly looking at the bottom line because the margins are so slim um, after all of the discounts and chargebacks and, and such. Um, in, in other words, recycled paper is just more expensive than other kinds of paper? Yeah, that's the bottom line, is that when you're pricing out the manufacture of books, recycled paper costs more to use in manufacturing than other types of paper. And... Um, uh, the, the, the greater issue that this is typically cast in is, is to, to not talk about uh, recycled paper as directly as, as to use phrases like ethical publishing. But that seems to open the field up to me to other considerations um, uh, in regard to, to the uses of, of paper and, and other production questions. I mean, um, you recently circulated uh, a note, and we share a distributor, uh, Melville House and Manic D, and the distributor had circulated a note you wrote about the greater issues of ethical publishing beyond recycled paper. Uh, perhaps you could review a couple of those issues for me, because uh, I thought you put it really beautifully in that note. Well, I think that some of the issues around um, ethical publishing, it goes beyond just using recycled paper. It's really bringing a consciousness to every aspect of your business. So while we can't afford to print on recycled paper, not that we wouldn't if the price of the paper were the same as every other sheet that's mm -hmm. available. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things that we do are um, looking at where is our distributor's warehouse that they'll be shipping the books from mm -hmm. and try and find a printer who will be manufacturing the books close to the warehouse, uh, thereby cutting down on the amount of uh, how far the books are being transported by truck. Mm -hmm. um, by limiting transportation, um, we not only save fossil fuel, you know, the diesel, but also um, create less of a hole in the ozone layers because um, there's fewer emissions coming out. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that people should definitely consider in terms of 
uh, the environment and um, you know the ethics involved in any kind of manufacture. Mm-hmm. So we look for a printing plant that's close to the distribution center. Um, we think about marketing in terms of marketing our books, doing as much online promotion as possible using email, um, using the internet as a real source of disseminating information because that also cuts down on every time a piece of mail is delivered, well, there's lots of trucks involved in getting it from here to there. Um, and it's much much more environmentally friendly to just send stuff electronically back and forth. Um, even in terms of submissions, we're moving right now. We still um, accept hard copies, but we're moving towards um, re- um, redoing our model of how we accept submissions um, so that we will be doing uh, accepting sub- submissions over the Internet mm-hmm. um, to cut down on paper and transportation costs. Mm-hmm. In the office, some of the things we do, um, we have a duplexing laser printer that we love, which prints on both sides of the paper, so we're using half as much paper in the office and recycling all the paper in the office. We've changed out our light bulbs from incandescent to um, the fluorescent, warm white fluorescent bulbs, um, which cut down on energy usage in the office. So there's a lot of things that uh, ethical publishers can do besides using recycled paper. Yeah. Well, you're up against some mighty publicity, though, aren't you? I mean, um, I, I know uh, J.K. Rowling, for example, uh, a big deal was made out of the fact that the last of the Potter books, uh, at least in the U.K., I think was was printed on recycled paper. Margaret Atwood is another one who's, who's come out... Um, uh, re- supposedly speaking about ethical publishing, but really focusing on, on the uses of recycled paper. She's got a great quote, uh, quote, we would never buy paper made from dead bears, otters, salmon, and birds, from ruined native cultures, from destroyed species and destroyed lives, from ancient forests reduced to stumps and mud, but that's exactly what we're buying when we buy paper made from old growth trees. Um, so, so there's some really big players starting to get around behind uh, recycled paper. Well, one of the things about you know J.K. Rowling or Margaret Atwood um, getting involved in the conversation is that they already have uh, they're very well established uh, celebrity authors. Mm-hmm. Um, Manic D doesn't really have that privilege. Mm-hmm. What we do is publish people nobody's ever heard of Mm -hmm. for the most part Um, but hopefully who they'll have heard of soon after (laughs) we publish them because they're awfully talented but um you know so we can't you know stand on you know pomp and circumstance you know we can't really stand there and say oh yes this is what you should be doing Mm -hmm. um because you know we're doing the best we can in terms of um being true to our mission of bringing new voices into print and finding an audience that um that will relate to the writing that we're publishing and moving the whole culture forward in that way um, and, and, and working and living as ethically as we can within whatever parameters we're able to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that J.K. Rowling has to look at the fact that you know she had her publishers put out a hardcover book that was 900 pages. Each book weighs you know, practically two pounds or more, mm-hmm. transporting more than a million or 17 million or whatever she sold of those um, around the globe. You know, it's nice that she used recycled paper, but the truth of the matter is that um, the pollution to the air and the use of fossil fuel to transport those books um, may or may not, you know, balance out the use of recycled paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did it really need to be 900 pages? Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I don't know. <laughs> so we can have uh, more environmentally conscious editing going on. Some, something like that. Yeah. You know, could she say it in 600 pages instead of 900? <laughs> well, um, so so some of the issues uh, that, that, that get disregarded uh, when we're talking about recycled paper um, are things such as the transportation, if there were um, alternative uh, ways to, to deal with uh, promotion and, and editing and, and whatnot electronically instead of through hard copy. Yeah, and, um, you, and also keep an eye on, um, on your print runs. In other words, yes, the unit cost is uh, smaller if you print more books, but mm -hmm. the idea is print pretty close to the um, amount you need. Figure mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. you know, okay, this is how many, you know, we're getting advance orders on. This is how many we can sell through. I mean, having, you know, boxes and boxes, thousands and thousands of extra books that you can't sell, you're just going to have to recycle them anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you really look at your numbers and don't print them in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you can also know what your sell-through is. Work really hard to promote your books so that they will sell through because um, transporting them back and forth, you know, shipping them out to the bookstores and then having them returned is also detrimental to the environment. Mm -hmm. So um, really, really uh, push as hard as you can on the publicity and marketing and try and get good sell-through so they don't all come back. So I think one, one thing you're, you're making clear is that uh, any concern of ethical publishing is actually up to more than just the publisher. Um, I mean, one reason publishers often overprint is because of demands from from bookstores who are overordering, for example, um, for display purposes or, or whatever. Um, and it sounds like what you're describing is is a, is a complicated system, but one that's going to involve every layer of the publishing business a bit more thoroughly. Um, yeah, I think it's every layer, but I also think that it goes it's on beyond paper. Paper is one aspect of it, right? But um, but it really enters into every every aspect of what you're doing mm -hmm. all day long. Mm -hmm. Well, Jennifer Joseph of Manic D Press, thanks so much for coming on Moby Lives Radio. Well, thank you, Dennis. And that's our show for Tuesday, the 13th day of December in 2005. Thanks a million to Jennifer Joseph of the great Manic D Press for coming on the show. She spoke to us from her office in San Francisco. And thanks as well to Shimo, Melville House's literary sub-agent in Japan. He spoke to us from his office in Tokyo. By the way, those of you who tuned in today expecting to hear uh, Colin Robinson, the departing head of the new press, our apologies, but that interview had to be postponed. It will happen, but not until after the holidays, we promise. In the meanwhile, come back tomorrow when we're going to be talking to writer Paul Berman about his new book, Power and the Idealists. For now, our thanks to engineer Andrew Steinmetz and to the crew here at Melville House, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher Valerie Marians. We will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. For now, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. <laughs> <laughs>